From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast, Friday edition. I'm back, Zach. Joanna is back. She survived <laughs> Canada. No grizzly bear attacks. No, no grizzly bear attacks. <laughs> no. But we did see some wildlife. Nice. We saw a few elk, a few moose, meese. Mooses. Mm, <laughs> mooses. A coyote. Yes, I I am back from the great white north. Mm-hmm. Is that what they call it? <laughs> it is one of the names, I believe. I don't know. Yeah. I, I should like know. You, I should know. <laughs> you're the resident uh, Canadian yeah. expert, adjacent expert. Right. <laughs> so. um, I, thought, uh, I thought your chats with Beth, Beth and M were great, though. Thank you. That was nice. Yeah, it was a fun chance to do something just a, a little bit different than our normal format, because... You know, I felt like it would be nice to have some, you know, little different voices to cover some of those topics in a slightly different way than, yeah. than we typically do. So, yes. Yeah. Did you get to read anything on the site while you were gone? Anything of course. Exciting? Of course. Well, um, from this week, uh, well, before I before I headed out, um, I did listen to the Cocktail College episode on the Alaska cocktail ah. um, featuring Trey Sanford, who uh, is from Anchorage and works in Anchorage. I unfortunately did not uh, have an Alaska cocktail while I was in Alaska, um, but I'll get into what I did drink in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other pieces on the site, um, I really liked uh, Jake Emmons' recent piece on flavored premium whiskey, mm-hmm. kind of explored this segment and, and this trend towards... Um, premium and ultra premium whiskey uh being flavored now with crown royal 250 dollars bottle of apple crown royal (laughs) being being the hook there um and how that's an interesting trend that we're seeing and people are liking it um i also really like maggie hennessy's piece on uh the spritz as the ultimate fuck it drink (laughs) and kind of discussing the you know the versatility of the spritz as a format as like a you know, great summer drink for when you just need something uh, a little no frills and, and watered down. What about you, Zach? Well, I want to say one thing about Maggie's piece, which oh, yeah. I also enjoyed. And I do think that one of the I don't lo- I don't love to like there are two kinds of people dichotomy. I mm-hmm. think it's rarely true. But I do think there's the person who measures their spritz ingredients and the person yeah. who doesn't. And those yeah. are two very different people. Yeah. Um, no, she measure. I'm, do you measure yours? You fall and, say what? You you strike me as someone who measures their spritz. Oh no, I definitely do not. No, okay. No. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well. Okay, I don't know you at all. <laughs> Still layers to uncover about each other, I suppose. <laughs> there are cocktails that I believe in measuring, and a spritz is definitely not one of them. Fair. But I think the piece that I really enjoyed was um, by Caroline Eubanks about how Mexico became a secret bourbon hub during Prohibition. Yes, a really interesting piece that. That was a piece of bourbon and and prohibition history that I wasn't really familiar with. Love love to learn more about kind of the various ways in which America's various you know beverage companies stayed something like afloat, whether mm-hmm. legally or not, in all cases during that period. And I think what's really interesting is you know I've often been told and thought about the effect that prohibition had on you know, this, the spirits industry and the way uh, the interplay between the United States and some of its neighbors in terms of, to some extent, bartenders leaving the States and going to set up shop in Mexico, in Cuba, etc. Or alternatively, kind of the post prohibition story of like kind of bringing back 
more you know spirits like tequila you know kind of the one of the potential origin stories of the margaritas kind of comes out of this early this period of time and, and bartenders sort of going to mexico working with tequila using it in place of some other spirits and then kind of bringing that back to the united states post prohibition but this whole piece about how bourbon producers you know move their whole operations in some cases south of the border to be able to stay you know in operation was really fascinating just a really cool read and like i said a piece of history that i was just unfamiliar with yeah yeah i like that piece as well Okay, so today's topic, we wanted to talk about um, kind of based off of my recent travels mm-hmm. um, and some of the drinking experiences that I had, uh, mostly with family members, um, one being that my, f- so I was with Evan's family and obviously there are a lot of younger people um, in their 20s and 30s and then like the adults who are in their, you know, 60s and up and um my father-in-law, Jim, had never heard of a hard seltzer or like a white claw. We had some white claws and some high noons and um, we were kind of like introducing them to him, which I just thought was so funny because um, he'd never heard of them and never tried them before and was drinking them by the end of the weekend. Um, but also when we were up in Whitehorse with Evan's little sister, Silken, um, she and her partner, Liam, like we were kind of introducing them to some, like, obviously they've had cocktails and like cocktails, but don't really make them at home. It's not part of, you know, how they're drinking culture. Um, and so we were making some classic cocktails like a martini and a gimlet for them. Um, and it got me thinking about how, you know, there's kind of this generational divide in how we approach drinking with what's available to us today. Um, And I wanted to talk about that with you, Zach, like just this older how, you know, RTDs and FMBs and things like that and how they how they can appeal to an older generation. Do they need to at all? Like, does it matter? Um, And then for spirits and stuff like that and cocktails, you know, is there an interest in the younger generation as they become of drinking age or are there just so many things available like those RTDs and FMBs and all these different things that they don't really have to jump into, you know, making mixology and making cocktails or they just aren't as interested in it. So I think I actually want to ask a question back at you before, mm. before we, or to kind of help frame this conversation, because I, I when you, you know, kind of pose this to me and I thought about it a little bit, I was sort of puzzling myself about, like when, you know, you and I were first kind of entering drinking age, or even if you think about and talk to people who are maybe a a bit older than us, you know, I wonder if there was, because of the, you know, the fact that there were fewer options, that this entire sort of category of, you know, RTD drinks, whether they're, want to think of them as cocktails, or, you know, how they bleed into seltzer and things like that. Yeah. But like that whole category functionally, either didn't exist or it was seen, you know, it was, it was in a previous iteration, the sort of Mike's hard lemonade, Zima kind of like not seen as serious drinks for grownups, I guess I would say, not that there weren't people who drank those who were of all ages. They obviously had appeal across the generations to some extent, but just the sort of cultural perception was. And I'm wondering if what part of we're seeing now or what we will see is I think in the past there was a belief, and this will actually kind of be a an interesting thing to watch, that, you know, people 
as they aged, their drinking preferences changed and moved from, you know, the various drinks that were sort of seen as like, you know, your kind of starter drinks, whether they were sort of sweet and saccharine and, you know, couldn't really taste the booze. However, that kind of was packaged to you to, mm-hmm. you know, more sort of maybe higher alcohol or more intense flavored or, or more bitter uh, beverages in, in all, you know, kind of across categories. And one one of the big questions in the industry right now, and I think we're kind of touching on it, is are the drinkers that are now coming of age with with hard seltzer, with other packaged RTG drinks, at some point going to say, okay, that was what I drank when I was 22, 23, but now I want to drink, now I'm 30, and right. I want to drink something that feels more, I don't know, Adult. sophisticated or mm-hmm. more in line with my, my evolving flavor palette or whatever. And so... I think that's one big question about whether this divide, as you would call it, is really about just new products being available that are appealing to people who are younger. But I will say that I think, you know, your father-in-law notwithstanding, I'm surprised, always surprised at the number of people I meet who are in their 40s and 50s and beyond who really are big fans of seltzer and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess I just uh, maybe I just don't have (laughs) experience or don't drink with that crowd enough or haven't. <laughs> but I, I, I'm sure that this data exists out there somewhere um, or that there's been, it would be an interesting survey for us to do for our readers. But yeah, I I get that point and I see it and I think that, but then I think about all of the, like not everything that's kind of canned right now. Like I think a, there is a lot of like very sophisticated options available whatever, sophisticated, mature, whatever, ref- more refined options available that that don't fit in that category of like mm, the Zimas and the ice, Smirnoff ices and things that we maybe had. When or maybe we, even just White Claw. M- meaning like we're, we're saying that the White Claw is like the Zima of this generation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not necessarily in terms of flavor profile exactly, but just in terms of the like... You know, the the question, maybe one of them is like, is the format the thing that people are going to like, are people going to continue to want the flavor profile of hard seltzer, but maybe you want to feel like they're having it in a more sophisticated format, i.e. not like a 16 ounce can? Right. Or, or is the format totally fine to them? And they might just, you know, we might just have a, a, gen, a rising generation of drinkers who are like, I don't, you know, put it in the can for me. I don't care what it is. Like, I'm happy to drink it out of that for hmm. the next 30 years. So it's a format thing. Well, I don't know. That's, I think, the one of the open questions, right? Like, yeah. I think, like, I think about this, like, with talking to my parents who are, you know, in their seventies, mm-hmm. and you know, you look at a, a canned package of alcohol as something that's like cheap, right? Yeah. That's just the that's just for that generation, and to some extent, I think maybe even for you and for me, it's hard to escape the notion that, like, again, I think about this like sometimes through the lens of beer. Like when I was first getting into beer, the quality beers, the craft beers, were in glass, right? Whether or on draft. It was, you know, whether it was a 12-ounce bottle, a 22-ounce bottle, a 750-mil bottle, like, it, it wasn't a fancy beer in a can. And obviously, that has changed a lot. Like, the craft beer now is yeah. so can-centric in a lot of ways, and there are good reasons for that, and, and it is good, I think, for a lot of reasons. But it does mean that, like, we are part of, like, part of the question here, part of the reason why perhaps your father-in-law was, like, unfamiliar with, uninterested in something like hard seltzer at the outset was like, it's probably just a part of the, you know, the LCBO that he just like doesn't even look at. Cause like, I don't want yeah. things in the can. That doesn't seem like that doesn't, I'm not that kind of drinker. You know what right. I mean? Right. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that actually, because by the end of the weekend, um, he, he had like something in a cup and he was like, 
guess what I'm drinking? And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know. What are you drinking? And he said it, he was drinking, I think it was a, a high noon, but he had poured it into a cup. And then I yep. think about my dad. Oh, Jim, Jim also always pours beer into glasses. And so does my dad um, and never, ever drinks out of a bottle or out of a can. But when I think about younger people or even like uh, myself, I, I, I have no problem drinking out of a can. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point to that. note here because yeah, yeah. there's that question of are some of these generational differences really about the product? And I'm not now that I, now that we're talking about it, I'm not even sure that it really is. I mean, I think about this, you know, it's funny like we've been talking about this. This is going to be kind of a sprawly conversation. Sorry. Yeah, folks. sorry. <laughs> I've been thinking about this like it kind of ties into a thing I've been thinking about a lot, which is, you know, the sort of slow rise of interest in wine in alternative formats, rather mm-hmm. it's canned, boxed, etc. And how a lot of the resistance to that is rooted in a sort of like idea that like, okay, well, cans are fine, bag and box is fine for like inexpensive wine, unserious right. wine, right? And maybe better for those wines. You know, the sort of more high-minded folks will be like, rightly, you know, oh, the the carbon footprint is much uh, smaller because it's much less uh, energy intensive to ship uh, lighter things like cans and bags and box than have you glass bottles. Mm-hmm. But like, let's be real, like the serious wine is always going to have to come in a bottle, probably sealed with a cork, etc. And a part of me wonders if that seems self evident right now. And yet, would I be shocked if in 20 years, that is no longer true to some extent, maybe in part because a rising generation of wine drinkers, which do exist, even if the doom and gloom in the wine industry doesn't always <laughs> make it seem that way, is just less, both in wine and in all packaged, you know, alcohol goods, is less fussy about format and maybe even gravitates towards a format that reminds them, is familiar to them of a, you know, beverages they started out with, whether those were wine or other. And I think that is a really, to me, that is a really interesting question that I'm not sure we can really, you know, we can guess at, but I don't yeah. think there's a lot of data yet but i think it's in a way more likely that those kinds of preferences or lack thereof will linger even if people's tastes and palates do change yeah i think that's a that is really an interesting consideration in this conversation because when you think about something like a high noon it's vodka it's vodka soda right and yeah. I feel like my parents drink plenty of those. Uh, <laughs> so it just, yeah, it is. It's the format. Um, you know, something that I put out at the, kind of the beginning in setting this up, what I think, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think is like, do you think these segments need, like need these different generations buy-in? Ooh. I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think it depends a little bit on what your aspirations are. I mean, like we're seeing this with, with all, with like kind of your, your various categories. I mean, I think about like the, again, the conversation in wine a lot right now is kind of like, how do, how does wine as a category, which is maybe a bit of a facile one to look at it, but whatever, kind of attract younger drinkers. And I think the answer is kind of like, well, wine to some extent is, it's not always attracting younger drinkers into the same kinds of wines that that have been very popular with an older generation some of it is you know there's kind of been this natural belief that like people's interest in wine will rise as they age and we may or may not see that i mean the data isn't exactly great on that front 
but I also think it's hard to, it's still a little hard to say. I think that, you know, the bigger the category, the more you want to be appealing to, to have product that everyone can connect to. So, you know, I think this is a, a, it's interesting to think about, you know, with some of the stuff you mentioned, right? Like with seltzers and stuff like that is the, is the appeal of them going to be sort of persistent, but perhaps always a little bit skew young, skew kind of, you know, less serious drinking occasions, which again, isn't a bad place for a no, product no. to be. People love to like party. People love to have like a, a just a like fun drink that they can have whenever that, that, that doesn't ha- come with pretension, doesn't come with, you know, a certain kind of expectation. But they also, people generally do sometimes want that other thing, too. Yeah, I feel like from from like the hard seltzer point of view, probably reliably capture a younger audience as, it, as they become, you know, as they hit drinking age. And then hope to hang on to the existing drinkers as they continue to age. Right? When you think of our generation, like when we turn... 50 and 60 and 70 maybe we'll find you know because because we're familiar with hard seltzer and it's a part of our drinking habits already like i'm sure it but it it won't be as like it won't be necessary for the category right to hang on to older drinkers but we'll at, at least be more familiar with it than the people who never experienced it when they were younger you know yeah i think this is a hard thing to know at this point because there's also the risk in some cases, I, I think maybe something like hard seltzer might be particularly vulnerable to this if, if it does come to pass of kind of backlash against a, what a previous generation drank, right? Like sure. part of the reason why we look at things like Zima and wine coolers and whatnot as like, ugh, really? Like they're, things, they're props for an 80s themed party. They're not mm-hmm. like serious <laughs> beverages that people look for is because they have a certain, you know, they're associated with a certain generation you know, our parents or our older siblings or kind of, a, or Gen X, depending on our relationship to them, you know, they're, or, you know, kind of like their youth and some of, there's some, maybe some fascination with that in certain ways, but there's also not like a, we want to do everything that they did kind of vibe, or at least it may be cyclical, right? It will probably go out of fashion and then may come back into fashion again in a yeah. different f- form in some sense. So mm-hmm. I do think that there's, there's always that. I mean, the, these categories are cyclical. There are trends that rise and fall and rise again and all of that. But I do think that the 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 generational divide as I see it is is kind of is not just about the specific product or even the category within drinks, but I think it's also a little bit about a mindset, an approach. And I think this is maybe the thing that is more interesting to me to kind of interrogate in a sense, which is that my, my sense, and again, based on like the shittiest possible anecdotal data, like (laughs) talking to my parents, basically. But like, when it comes to drinking, my parents are extremely predictable. Yeah, right. My mom's cocktail, such as is of choice is like, always a gin and tonic. Like, every once in a while, my mom will have another kind of drink. But almost always a gin and tonic. And if it's not a gin and tonic, she wants sparkling wine. And if it's not those things, well, she might have a few. She might have other wine as well. But like those are her two favorites. She would probably, if she were given the choice, would probably only ever drink those two things Mm -hmm. and is perfectly happy with that. And, you know, my dad is a little bit more of a wine person. So his 
but even then within wine, his tastes are, you know, not like super narrow, but they're not as broad as some. And like, he has things that he likes and he tends to stick with them. And I don't know at this point in my life, whether that is like it's, or with even talking to my parents, whether it's fair to make that a broad generalization about their entire cohort, probably not, but I'm still going to do it. Yeah. I think you see a lot of this in like, it has been a story of wine in some ways, right? It was a story to some extent with beer and things like that, of like that generation finding favorites and sticking with them. And there being an incredibly lucrative market for producers to give that generation the exact thing that they've said they wanted year in, year out, you know, season in, season out, and just kind of keep doing that because that was, that met the needs. And I think that whether it's for our generation or even a younger generation coming into drinking, I'm not sure that that same approach will work. Uh, Not to say that there aren't people who haven't found things that they love and would be happy to drink them forever. But I think that we are in a period where, and, and our generation and younger generations are a little more fickle a little harder to please in that regard a little need more variety or more options because we've just grown with it right you know yeah we we don't need it but we have it it's available to us at all times and i think about like you know they my my parents grew up with whatever three channels on tv right you got whatever was there and we grew up with well depending on where and how you grew up but like you know (laughs) i grew up with cable tv and i had probably you know 50 channels and uh, you know, people who are, you know, a fair bit younger than us grew up with streaming and everything available all the time. Yeah. And I think it, it it becomes hard to kind of, in a way, construct a certain kind of business around this idea that like, once you capture a, a sale, once you capture a customer, they will just be with you because I just don't think that's how a younger generation looks at anything they're not like, oh, I'm brand loyal now forever. Right. It's like, okay, that's what I liked now now i'm gonna move on to something else and maybe i'll come back to that in you know six months a year five years whatever but like i'm not there's always another thing to go out and try and i just don't think that's a prevailing attitude in an older set yeah i mean i think that's also because there was just so much even especially in the in the drink space and Mm -hmm. there were just so so much less available like there were very few gins available back then you know like we've talked about brand loyalty before and how I think all of our parents kind of have it Adams mentioned like the doers his his family the men in his family like like doers and stuff but yeah there's just like there's so much available to us now that I think I agree and we've definitely seen it in wine where at this point for brands you can't just rely on brand loyalty from one uh set of the or from a certain segment of the consuming population um because you do need to appeal to more people than that um to i don't know (laughs) to be successful (laughs) to make money yeah well and i think you know it's really it's really hard to actually be interesting. I think something that we'll touch on again on the Monday episode, because there'll be some, a little bit of overlap here, which is, you know, just fortuitous for us Mm -hmm. is, you know, this ongoing challenge for a lot, you know, that's why you see so much, you know, so much energy and, and to some extent money being kind of put into this idea of, of kind of getting people, getting people to be, as close to brand loyal as they'll be with younger cohorts. And it's like, you know, why it's still the kind of holy grail, even if it's a harder thing to accomplish. Well, it has to be part of it, right? At least part of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you you need to, to be able to build a stable, successful brand. You have to have, you know, I don't know that I'm sure some of the people listening can give us more specifics if you want to 
send us your thoughts. It's podcast at vinepair.com, but like can give us more of a sense of like how individual brands might look at this. But like you presumably a good chunk of your sales are hopefully whatever you are, whether you're a beer, wine, spirit, you know, uh, seltzer, et cetera, are going to be made up by people who are, if not diehard brand loyalists, are at least regular purchasers of your product and how they make those purchases regularly may vary, but you know, they're there. And that allows you then to have some base of stability to try and grow or, you know, replace people who may have exited the category for one reason or another with other drinkers. But I do think that, you know, we just, it's so hard to chart a course, I think, because you you can't just, you know, to, to come back to the example, you know, we were just citing, you can't just get, you know, Adam's dad to like doers in, you know, in his twenties or whatever, and be like, okay, that's just the bottle he's going to have for now until the rest of his life or as long as he keeps drinking or whatever. I just don't think there are that many people like that anymore. Not none. There are certainly people who are brand loyal. Like my cousin is a crown Royal diehard. Like that's all he drinks pretty much. Um, I don't know about the, I don't know how he'd respond to the 23 year old Apple crown Royal, (laughs) but probably positively if I had to guess, Mm -hmm. um, if I ever get a bottle, I'll share some with him. But, uh, but the point is like, I think, that is less common than it used to be. People, I mean, again, think about this, like people, there was a lot of defining yourself through your consumer choice, right? Like you were a, you were a, a Ford person or a Chevy person. You were a Coke person or a Pepsi person. You were a Miller Coors or, or Bud person. Like, I don't mean that no one does that anymore. I am sure that's to some extent still exists, but those different points of differentiation make some kind of sense in a world with very few choices, right? When your three beers are those three beers, then the one you choose you does one. say something <laughs> about you. But when you are the person who is like, I am a, you know, I am a Miller Light diehard in a world with not just craft beer, but a bunch of other light loggers, like it is a little bit of like a, I don't know, I feel like I look at someone who's that sort of dogmatic about their drinking and i'm like really that seems just like a weird like like i can understand preferring it to the other two major you know light loggers but like what about all these other things that are out there or or, you know why are you uh only into one kind of blended scotch when there are like you know dozens available now some of them are really fascinating like it just it, it is a it is a kind of mindset that i think is harder to maintain in a world with as much choice as we now have yeah yeah i uh I don't know. I I think we'll uh, maybe I'll have to get Jim on the podcast to uh, see what <laughs> explain he yourself. Jim. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just be a, it'll just be our dads podcasting yeah. about the things they like. God, just what we need. That's a good idea. Yeah, um, or fathers in law, right. whatever. Fathers in law. Yep, dads. Zach, this is a great chat. I'm happy to be back. And uh, nice to have you back. Thank you. I will talk to you um, on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. 
It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shrino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.